You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Happy New Year, all you Constantines! Uh, this week, we are revisiting an old episode. Not something I do very often, but hear me out. It is the holidays. <laughs> And I need a break. Is that not enough? All right, well, here's the other thing. I'm working on one of those stories that keeps getting bigger and bigger the longer I dig. Pun intended. And not only do I need some more time to pull it all together, but it happens to tread some familiar ground. I initially released this episode, Are Whales Fish?, around a year and a half ago, and I think it remains one of the best of this show's whole run. So if you haven't heard it, here it is. If you have heard it, though, you can consider this a refresher because a lot of the arguments and the characters and the history in this episode will come back in two weeks when I begin the new, probably three-part series I'm cobbling together now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the most frustrating question ever posed, are whales fish? On March 31, 1818, the New York State Assembly and Senate passed a seemingly simple and uncontroversial law, a minor law, to abridge a minor problem. A curious constellation of businesses had all been suffering from the same issue. The leather tanning industry, soap manufacturers, paint mixers, woodworkers, and more. They were all sick of being duped by bad product. See, all of these businesses relied upon a particular component to do their work fish oil. But the importers and sellers of fish oil at New York's harbors were constantly screwing with their customers. They'd water the fish oil down, or cut it with cheaper oil, or otherwise misrepresent the quality or concentration of their product. And since fish oil was sold in closed barrels, all the tanneries and paint factories and soapers were routinely getting screwed, with no way to protect themselves. So, these various industries appealed to the state government, who, as I said, passed a law on March 31st, 1818, entitled An Act Authorizing the Appointment of Gaugers and Inspectors of Fish Oils. Like it said on the tin, the act called for regulation over the fish oil market. Anyone importing fish oil into New York would have to go through the appointed inspector who would make sure it was up to snuff. Each barrel would be given a stamp of approval, letting all those leather tanners know that they weren't getting gouged. Now, the interesting thing about New York's fish oil inspector, I'm really squeezing the definition of the word interesting here, but trust me, this is going to be very interesting very soon. But the marginally interesting thing about New York's fish oil inspector is that he wasn't paid by the state. Instead, he was authorized by the state to charge a small fee to the fish oil importers and merchants, who were then allowed to pass a portion of that fee onto their buyers. I think it's safe to say that the importers didn't love this. But the alternative was worse. Anyone who failed to get their fish oil inspected had to pay a hefty fine, 25 bucks per barrel, roughly the equivalent of $550 in today's currency, if they were discovered. That was the logic that James Maurice, fish oil inspector to New York City, tried to impress upon Samuel Judd, a candle maker and oil merchant, when he found him unloading three barrels of oil. Maurice explained to Judd that he was the city fish oil inspector and that Judd had two options. He could either pay 20 cents to have his barrels inspected, certified, and stamped, or he could refuse and pay the $75 fine. Samuel Judd 
chose neither. He wouldn't pay the fee, and he wouldn't pay the fine. He didn't have to, he said, because his barrels didn't fall within James Maurice's jurisdiction. How do you figure that? asked Maurice. Because this isn't fish oil, answered Judd. It's whale oil. And whales aren't fish. To which Maurice cleverly retorted, Are so. Are not, answered Judd. Are so, Maurice said, getting the feeling that he had wandered off of the recorded history and into my juvenile imagination. Are not, mocked Judd, feeling similarly. Okay, said James Maurice. If whales aren't fish, then what are they? They're mammals, responded Samuel Judd. Just like you and me. Man, You and... Maurice sputtered before finally blurting out, I'll see you in court. And so he would. On December 30th, 1818, the mayor's court in Manhattan was filled to the rafters with people from all walks of life. Natural philosophers, fishermen, reporters, tanners, whalers, ichthyologists, and workaday civilians. They were all there to see whether Samuel Judd, candlemaker and oil merchant, owed James Maurice, fish oil inspector to New York City, 75 bucks or not. And to settle, once and for all, the burning question, are whales fish? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. I have been wanting to tell you the story of Maurice V. Judd since the moment I heard about it, which was about two years ago. What stopped me from running up and blabbing it to you then is that I thought it was too slight, that there wasn't enough there there to constitute a full episode. Oh, how wrong I was. Not only is the history surrounding this case fascinating, flummoxing, and a third word beginning with F, but it also gets to the very root of the philosophy of this show. What do we really know, and how do we know we know it? The more I think about it, the more the story of Maurice V. Judd begins to entwine with some of the hardest questions we can ask. Like, what does it mean to exist and to be? What are the properties of reality? What is the distinction between a useful category and a true category? And all of that stems from what seems like the most absurd and facile question you could think to ask, which is the title of today's episode, Are Whales Fish? That question was not at all absurd or facile to the people of 1818 New York, though. And while opinion on the matter was anything but uniform, a clear majority would have answered simply, yes. That view held popular sway for a good deal after 1818, too. Most famously, Herman Melville goes on at great length, really, the length at which he goes on cannot be overstated, about whales being fish in Moby Dick, which he published in 1851. After explaining the debate over the question, Ishmael, or the guy who asks us to call him Ishmael at least, concludes, Be it known that, waiving all argument, I take the good old-fashioned ground the whale is a fish and call upon holy Jonah to back me. At the time he wrote Moby Dick, Melville thought it was necessary to explain, again, not briefly, why anyone would think a whale was anything other than a fish. But today it's probably the opposite. So, before we get to the trial, let me do my best to explain why a whale is a fish. In short, because the Bible. Genesis chapter 9 organizes living creatures into three distinct categories. Birds, beasts, and fishes. I doubt I have to go any further explaining what made who which. Whales are fish because they swim in the sea. That is all we need to know. In 1818, people knew, or at least could be easily taught, that whales breathed air and had warm blood and gave suck to their young, which they birthed live. Those facts might be interesting or even confusing, but they had nothing to do with whether whales were fish. And if that makes you scoff, well, well you know what, never mind, have fun scoffing. While you still can. So on the one hand, you had the biblical system of taxonomy. But on the other, you had a different tradition, descended, predictably, from 
fucking Aristotle. So the story goes, after Plato died, Aristotle departed Athens for his father-in-law's place, where he stayed until said father-in-law kicked the bucket. Then he left along with his pupil Theophrastus for the island of Lesbos, where he stayed until Philip invited him to teach his son Alexander the Great. But while in Lesbos, he and Theophrastus began developing a taxonomical system that had something like the appearance of science. I mean, honestly, if you just look at Aristotle's hierarchical categories, let alone Theophrastus's, who continued on the work after Aristotle, they look downright prescient. Aristotle began with plants and animals, what we'd now call kingdoms. Then he divided the animals into those he thought had red blood and those that didn't. That's a little wonky, but functionally, Aristotle's blood versus bloodless grouping pretty neatly divided vertebrates from invertebrates. Among the bloodless animals were the cephalopods, the crustaceans, the insects, etc. He broke the red-blooded animals into five groups. He divided land-dwelling quadrupeds into two separate groups depending on whether they laid eggs or gave birth to live young, a distinction that pretty cleanly separates most terrestrial mammals from most terrestrial reptiles and amphibians. He had a group for birds, which honestly seems too obvious to applaud him for, but still spot on Aristotle. And for the final two, he drew a division right down our critical question. There were fish and there were whales. And the two were not the same. Smarty smart smart, but hold on because there are two really big, bad assumptions underlying Aristotle's system, which we should talk about before we go patting him on the back too hard. The first is that while it's tempting for us to arrange Aristotle's system as a bottom-up hierarchy that goes from general, animal versus vegetable, to specific, dog versus cat, he was also working on a different level, placing each animal on a sort of ranking system, from highest to lowest. Aristotle's highest form of life was you're not going to believe this. Fucking Aristotle himself. Or fine, more charitably, human beings. But Aristotle sure thought that philosophers were the best human beings, so not a totally unfair charge. All of the differentiations Aristotle marked between animals were in service of deciding how human-like they were. And his categories, derived from solid observations though they were, placed them in that order. So, at the top, humans. Then you have the live-bearing quadrupeds, mammals, under them reptiles and amphibians, followed by the birds. And then came the whales and dolphins, the cetaceans, or seti, as Aristotle called them. Beneath them came the fish. Separate, inferior, but close by. The second issue with Aristotle's system, which we're already sort of rubbing against, is that it was a totally descriptive taxonomy. Unlike what we usually ask of scientific theories, Aristotle's had no predictive power. It didn't have some biological idea underpinning it. It was just an arbitrary grouping of things about how human-like they were, according to fucking Aristotle. That a lot of these arbitrary observations happen to line up with things we now know about the natural world is itself arbitrary. Do you get what I mean? Here. I'd like to just not mention this at all until much later, but it's going to make things a lot easier if we get it out of the way now. Aristotle didn't think that there was any literal relation between his genuses, let alone beyond them. Cats and dogs both gave birth to live young and both had four legs, so they were both viviparous quadrupeds. But that is all that meant. They were close to one another only by virtue of their relationship on the grand hierarchy, which was philosophical, not biological, in nature. As we've had cause to mention copious times now, Aristotle was a big believer in immutability. He was the guy who said the world had always existed and would always exist. And not to put too fine a point on it, in that eternal world, cats had always and would always be cats, and dogs had always and would always be dogs. I don't mean to harp on it, but it's really important that we get this down fully and completely, because this particular Aristotelian fallacy is paramount to every effort to understanding and categorizing living things for the whole of Western history, up until and continuing after Maurice sued Judd over three barrels of whale oil in 1818. I don't know about you. I'm still dancing around this just a little bit, but I think you're with me. I don't know about you, but when I look at, say, horses and zebras, I can't help but wonder, how did people used to explain how similar these things are? 
right? Like, how did it take so long for someone to say, hey, maybe these two are related? Well, the answer is, as it so frequently is, fucking Aristotle. I mean, it's not like the non-Aristotelians of the world were doing a great job of figuring it out. Even the great majority of people who never even heard about Aristotle didn't manage to figure it out either. But Aristotle's version of the hierarchical animal world, or what the Christian tradition would take to calling the great chain of being, is probably the easiest and most elegant way to explain how folks justified all the improbable coincidences surrounding them from species to species. The similarities of two different species of salamanders or rodents or, well, why the hell not, whales, were due to their sharing a similar purpose, what Aristotle called a telos. Their purposes occupied a similar place on the great hierarchy, running between man at the very top and plants at the very bottom. So, of course, things near to one another along that hierarchy looked similar or acted similarly. That was the nature of the universe. Those similarities, then, were both very profound and also very boring at the same time. And that boring profundity explained life as we knew it for a long, long while. Before we move on past Aristotle, which I'll be glad to do, I'd like to zoom in a little bit more on his thoughts on whales, because they're more complex than simply, they go between birds and fish. Aristotle knew that they breathed air and had lungs. He knew that they were warm-blooded. He knew that they gave birth to live young and produced milk. He even knew that they shared hair and teeth of a similar quality to terrestrial mammals. And Aristotle found this interesting. It was interesting. That's what he thought, and that's what most people who followed him thought, too. But that was all. It didn't mean they should be grouped together, because the important thing about the viviparous quadrupeds wasn't just that they were viviparous, but also that they were quadrupeds. They had four legs that they walked around on the land with, and cetaceans were four legs short. They were better than fish because they were warmer than fish and had better teeth. Coincidentally, this is the same exact reasoning he used to justify why men were better than women. But that wasn't enough to overcome the extreme deficit that was living in the water. After Aristotle, there isn't much to say about whale taxonomy or taxonomy more generally for a real long time. Like I said, Aristotle's disciple Theophrastus carried on the spirit of his teacher's work, but Theophrastus's focus was a very different animal. Or, I should say, a very different plant. It's okay, you can laugh. A very different plant. See? It's jokes. <sighs> See, Theophrastus and Aristotle were kind of polar opposites when it came to taxonomical priorities. Aristotle had thought there was no reason to pay much attention to plants. He didn't think they were different enough from one another, according to his notions of telos and kinds, to deserve differentiation apart from a split between high and low vegetables. But this disinterest in scrutinizing and categorizing the plant kingdom just goes to show how driven Aristotle was by philosophical concerns. It was obvious to Theophrastus that there were very important practical reasons to categorize plants. Some of them did stuff when you ate them. There were poisonous plants and healing plants, ones that tasted sweet and ones that tasted bitter. There were useful herbs that grew perennially and others that had to be reseeded every planting season. Having a taxonomical understanding of animals might tell you something about the nature of the universe and mankind's very hoity place in it, but a taxonomical understanding of plants was critical to the actual workaday world mankind lived in. Nearly everyone agreed with Theophrastus, and almost all taxonomical study performed in Europe for the next 2,000 years was focused on botany, and particularly in dividing plants by their usefulness, or hazardousness, to people. Pliny wrote his natural history, which cataloged every animal he had seen, heard about, thought of, or thought up, but he didn't categorize them in an especially meaningful way, and his knowledge of whales is just stolen from Aristotle. It wasn't until 1551 that a European scholar took a serious crack at categorizing marine life again. Said scholar was Pierre Ballon, who was the sort of world-traveling member of the Republic of Letters that we should all be used to hearing about on this show by now. He not only made his way around Europe, including stints in medicine and botany at the universities of Paris and Wittenberg, respectively, but even off of the continent, to Egypt and the Arabian Peninsula. 
He served kings and cardinals, worked with and studied under some of the great minds of the early Renaissance, and basically invented comparative anatomy, with an assist from Leonardo da Vinci. And then he was murdered on the road to Paris when he was 47 years old, possibly by thieves or else by spies, which he may also have been. Sounds like a bonus episode, but there isn't anything else known to say about that. Anyway, in his 1551 book, The Natural History of Strange Marine Fishes, hmm? Blonde borrowed both from Genesis and Aristotle and added a bit of his own work studying the skeletal systems of different animals. He put fish down as a category that encompassed all things living in the water, including whales, dolphins, but also crocodiles, and the very first European description of the hippopotamus. He then divided these fish into two categories, following Aristotle's lead, those with and without blood. He dissected several dolphins and porpoises and understood that they had the same general anatomy as other mammals, that they breathed air, that they gave birth to live young, etc. Still and yet, they lived in the water, so they were fish, just like sharks and hippos. The next year, an English doctor by the name of Edward Watton published Differentius Animalium Libre Decim, the first attempt at a complete book of natural history in Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. It was basically a one-to-one rehashing of Aristotle with a bit of Pliny thrown in for flavor, except for one important detail. Aristotle had said cetaceans were their own thing, but Watton said no. Cetaceans were just a suborder of fish. Because they lived in the water. The French anatomist Guillaume Rondelet made the same edit to Aristotle in his 1554 and 1555 books on marine life, all of which seems to indicate that the idea of fish as being the overriding category above the influence of Aristotle was probably already a popular and accepted truth. Still, there were people who more studiously followed Aristotle, which for once was a relatively good thing. The first gurgling bubble of the question at play in Maurice v. Judd really began with Edward Tyson, professor of anatomy at Oxford in the late 17th century. In 1680, he published the very on-the-nose title Phocana, or The Anatomy of a Porpoise Dissected at Gresham College. The results of the dissection of said porpoise, spelled adorably P-O-R-P-E-S-S, baffled Tyson. He wrote, What we have here is a signal example of the same between land quadrupeds and fishes. For if we view a porpoise on the outside, there is nothing more than a fish. For if we view a porpoise on the inside, there is nothing less. It is viviparous, does give suck, and hath all its organs so contrived according to the standard of them in land quadrupeds that one would almost think of it to be such. But it lives in the sea and hath but two forefins. Later, he goes on to realize that said forefins are skeletally quite similar to arms and hands, and that even the tail looked like mammal legs, quote, as if both hinder feet were collegated into one. Even with all of these very astute observations, Tyson doesn't come down one way or the other on the fish-mammal question. The naturalist John Ray had done some similar but not as deep anatomical research on a porpoise a few years before, and it sent him on a long, dark night of the soul. In 1671, he concluded that while the porpoise had a lot in common with the warm-blooded quadrupeds, it was still, in the end, a fish. Fifteen years later, his change of heart was underway. In his book Historia Piscium, he scrapped hippopotamuses and crocodiles from the fish group, as well as a lot of non-existent mythological fishes that everyone had been pretending might exist for the last thousand years because fucking Aristotle or Pliny had said so. He also removed the invertebrates from the fishes. And he described the cetaceans as not just similar to the quadrupeds, but internally identical to them. But still, they are fish. Just a distinct subgroup besides the sharks and the bony fish. During his work on the Historia Piscium, Ray became convinced that he could put together a thorough and universal categorization of animals, and in his attempts to do this, he was finally moved off his stubborn rock. In his next book, published about seven years later, he decided that whales were not fish, but belonged among, or at least next door to, the viviparous quadrupeds, or as he called them, the hairy animals. After a long, authoritative, and confident explanation for why whales should not be called fish, Ray finally decided instead to call them 
Well, no, never mind. Let's just call them fish after all, he said, since it's easier to remember and people already mostly say that anyway. Nope. To really set the stage for Maurice V. Judd, we'd need the big mamma jamma of taxonomy himself, Carl Linnaeus. Carl Linnaeus was born in 1707, in a small village in the south of Sweden. He came from a peasant family so poor that they couldn't even afford a proper last name, up until Carl's father, Nils, was admitted to the University of Lund. Nils had been known as Nils Ingermarsen, because his father's name had been Ingermar Benson, because his father had been Bengst something or other, and so on and so forth. A year after Carl was born, his other grandfather, Samuel Brodersonius, died. Samuel had been rector of the local church, which meant that now his son-in-law, Nils, was to step into his place. But to do that, he had to be educated, and to do that, he needed a real surname. So he called himself Nils Linnaeus, which basically meant Nils Lime Tree, because there was a lime tree in his family's backyard. Carl learned love of plants and gardening from his father, which carried him through his education. Most of his teachers thought he was a subpar student. He didn't flourish in any subjects they taught, except botany. The state doctor, Johann Rothman, was intrigued by Carl's love of plants and told Nils he could fashion him into a fine doctor if he would come and live with him and his family. Sounded good to Nils and to Carl, so off he went to live with Rothman. Through the physician, Linnaeus not only learned the science of botany and the rudiments of medicine, but he also had his first brush with categorizing. Since plants, particularly medicinal plants, were subject to a stricter idea of taxonomy than animals. By the time he left Rothmans to follow in his father's footsteps at Lund, nobody talked about him as subpar or even average. His greatness seemed just on the horizon's edge, free for anyone to see. He transferred to Uppsala University, where he studied botany and medicine with the financial support of Olaf Celsius. Yes, like that Celsius. And after graduating, worked as a lecturer and tutorer while writing papers on plants and their reproduction. It was somewhere in this time that he became frustrated with the current system of plant taxonomy and started trying to build something better, a process that would take years of work, travel, meetings, adventures, friendships, readings, dissections, and more before it finally culminated in a book as short as it was brilliant. There are a lot of people that Linnaeus came into contact with that helped him formulate his big idea. Many of them were onto similar ideas themselves. There are books that influenced him, specimens that influenced him, even some whale skeletons that influenced him. But since we've come this far in this story without getting back to the weird, funny whale oil trial, let me offer his apology the weirdest, funniest story of Carl Linnaeus. In 1735, Linnaeus began tutoring Klaus Solberg, the son of a mining inspector. Klaus's father suggested he could get Karl a place at the University of Hardwick so that he could complete his doctorate, along with a small stipend to travel and live there. He told him to take Klaus with him, and so, in April, the two started out for the Netherlands together. It was a very long journey, through Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and Flanders. Naturally, they made a lot of stops, one of which was the free city of Hamburg, then a part of the Holy Roman Empire, where they planned to stay a while. Hearing about Linnaeus' eye for natural history, the mayor of Hamburg decided to show him his prized possession, which he had purchased from some monks. It was a hydra, like the legendary one that Hercules had slain. Granted, this one was quite a bit smaller than in the stories, but nevertheless, it had the body, the claws, and, most incredibly, the many snake-like heads. The mayor was looking to sell the hydra for a small fortune, and rumor was that even the king of Denmark was interested in putting in a bid. What did Linnaeus think of that? What Linnaeus thought of that was that it was a crock of shit. The claws were clearly from a weasel, the heads a host of different snakes, and the body a Frankensteinian assemblage of parts and fat and limbs, all sewn together and covered with discarded snakeskins. Linnaeus theorized that the hydra had been cobbled together long ago to scare locals into behaving, lest the beast of revelation come for them. He made that theory, along with his observations, public to the people of Hamburg and presumably to the king of Denmark, too, and with one stinging declaration sunk the mayor's hopes of early retirement. Karl and Klaus had to flee the city. It was in the same year that he debunked the Hydra of Hamburg that Linnaeus published the first version of the book that changed the world, Systema Naturae. 
Linnaeus didn't do a lot of his own anatomy. He wasn't much of a biologist and didn't spend time out in the field observing his subjects. But he had read and listened and thought and come to the conclusion that he could systematize everything. Animal, vegetable, and mineral, the kingdoms he first laid out. Beneath the kingdom was the class, and beneath the class the order, and then the genus, and then the species. Each plant or animal in the world could be classified this way and referred to by its genus and species. Canis lupus, Ubalena glacialis, even Homo sapien. Everything had a first name and a last. In the 10th edition of Systema Naturae, Linnaeus introduced a new class of animals, which he defined by five features. A two-chambered heart, air-breathing lungs, hollow ears, fertilization through sexual intercourse, and the production of milk. To Linnaeus, that last feature was the most critical, and so it was for the milk-producing mammary glands that he named the new class, Mammalia. The mammals included all three of the examples I cited above, Canis lupus, wolves, Homo sapiens, people, Ubalena glacius, right whales. It didn't matter that whales lived in the water. It didn't matter that they had fins. It didn't matter what their purpose was, whatever that meant. What mattered was the whale's internal structure. Whales were warm-blooded, they had a two-chambered heart, they had lungs, the male fertilized the female's egg internally, they gave birth to live young, and most of all, whale mothers gave suck to their young. The 10th edition of Systema Naturae was published in 1758, and while it made a big splash among the natural philosophers of the time, it's clear that not everybody was so fast to accept Linnaeus's logic. Example A, in 1818, the New York City Mayor's Court held trial for Maurice V. Judd to decide whether, in fact, whales were still fish. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you enjoy bizarre true stories, then the Useless Information Podcast is the podcast for you. For example, did you know that author Robert Louis Stevenson gave his birthday away? Or that there was a football team that played for six years before someone realized that the school never, ever existed? Or that a dog in upstate New York was once placed on trial for murder? Well, to hear these and hundreds of additional fascinating true stories from the flip side history, be sure to check out the Useless Information Podcast. That's the Useless Information Podcast podcasting worldwide since 2008 and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to check it out. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. There's more than one way to skin a whale and more than one way to win a civil case against New York City's fish oil inspector, James Maurice. The defense had two paths forward. They could prove that whales were not fish, sure, but in the event they failed to do that, they could also prove that even if whales were fish, that whale oil was not the same thing as fish oil. Well, that's not nearly as fascinating a conjecture, it's one we should take a minute to look at if we're to try to understand at least partly what was really at stake on December 30th, 1818, when Maurice V. Judd was called to order. When it came to the question of the oil, there were two schools of thought, each supported by a number of expert witnesses. The plaintiff brought on a slew of people willing to testify that fish oil 
was an umbrella term that encompassed a number of specific products, including whale oil. The defense had even more witnesses set to rebut that testimony and say that whale oil was a separate and distinct thing from fish oil. For what it's worth, I find the defense witnesses to be much more convincing. They confidently note the differences in production and usage of fish oil, also known as liver oil or cod liver oil, whale oil made from rendering whale fat, and spermaceti, a waxy substance found in the head cavities of sperm whales, which was what Samuel Judd had been bringing into the city when Inspector Maurice improperly stopped him. And although the plaintiff had a number of upstanding, well-to-do New Yorkers enthusiastically willing to say that whale oil was the same as fish oil, each of them admitted that if someone came asking for fish oil, they would never provide them whale oil instead, let alone spermaceti, seeing as it was much more expensive. Moreover, the defense witnesses argued that the kind of adulteration the law was put into place to stop was not possible with whale oil, so there was nothing to inspect in the first place. That said... The more intriguing thing about the oil debate in court is who these experts were. On the defense's side were Judd's peers, fellow oil merchants, who thought the act authorizing the appointment of gaugers and inspectors of fish oil sucked, and particularly thought that Maurice was overreaching his already questionable mandate when he started trying to extort whale oil merchants. On the other side were New York's most successful tanners, leather merchants, the people who had written and pushed for the act authorizing the appointment of gaugers and inspectors of fish oils in the first place. They didn't have any reason to care about the specific nomenclatural differences between this and that and the other kind of oil. They just wanted people to stop selling them sloppy goods and didn't buy for a second the assurances of the very merchants that had been gouging them that there was no way for them to go on gouging them through adulterated whale oil. Now, this is the real fight. Samuel Judd was a prosperous merchant who moved hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of goods through New York Harbor every year. The 75-buck fine he was facing was nothing to him. His legal team probably cost him more than he stood to save. But he had decided to make of his three barrels of whale oil a test case to try to free himself and all his fellow merchants of the tyranny of fish oil inspector James Maurice. The Tanners, conversely, saw Judd and his witnesses as scofflaws who were testing the bounds of the legislation they'd passed in order to find a way to keep screwing them with inferior goods. Neither one of these companies had any vested interest in whether whales were fish. Most of them said on the stand that they didn't know or didn't care one way or the other. But we care, right? I mean, if you've made it this far and you don't care, then I have to apologize. Even if you don't, though, hell, even if I don't, the people following Maurice V. Judd, aside from the tanners and the merchants, definitely did. Oh, wait, no. Hold on. That's not fair. One of the merchants seemed to care a great deal. He was brought on as a defense witness to bridge the gap between the oil question and the whale question, because he had experience in both. At the time of the trial, he was a successful oil merchant and shipping agent. Before the trial, he had been a whaleboat captain. And after the trial, he would go on to become one of the most successful and influential people in New York, serving as an elector in the 1832 presidential race, president of Bank of America, and one of the founders of the New York Stock Exchange. His name was, oh, this is the best name in the whole sordid history of this show, so let's really milk the wind-up even more. His name was Captain Preserved Fish. <laughs> I love him. I love him so much. Preserved Fish. A whaleboat captain and fish oil merchant named Preserved Fish, you say skeptically? Surely that's not his real name. Well, you tell me. Preserved Fish was born in Portsmouth, Rhode Island in 1766. He was the son of a blacksmith whose name was... Ready? Preserved Fish. So... Captain Preserved Fish was actually Preserved Fish Jr.? No, no, because Preserved Fish the blacksmith was also the son of a man named Preserved Fish. That's Captain Preserved Fish the third to you. To throw an even bigger spanner in the works, for you American history buffs and New York history buffs who might be thinking of someone else with the last name of Fish and wondering if Preserved Fish the third was related to them, the answer is almost definitely yes. Nicholas Fish, 
the Revolutionary War hero, Federalist, first adjunct general of New York, and friend to Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he's a fish. Hamilton Fish, named for his dad's friend, New York governor, U.S. senator, secretary of state for Presidents Ulysses S. Grant and Rutherford B. Hayes. You better believe he's a fish. And also a Stuyvesant, as in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Stuyvesant Fish? A fish. Hamilton Fish II? Fish. Hamilton Fish III, the fourth, and the fifth? Fish, fish, fish. Has the word fish now lost all meaning for you? Me too. Which could be a problem going forward with the question of whether whales were them or not. Captain Preserved Fish, the third, thank you, said that they were definitely not. He'd spent a decade on a whaling ship and 20 more years working with whale derivatives, and he knew firsthand. On the stand, he declared confidently, the whale has not one character of a fish, except it's living in the water. Whales must breathe the atmospheric air. They may live for half or three quarters of an hour underwater, but must then come up to breathe the air again. They would drown in the water as much as a man would if they were tied or kept by any means under it. A simple, cogent, convincing argument from Captain Preserved Fish III. Then he came under cross-examination. Before we get to that cross, we should talk about who was leading it, because in a lot of ways, he's one of the two most important players in this case. There isn't much else to say about Maurice, but that he was a fish oil inspector, and not much to say about Judd other than that he sold oil. The real muscle of the argument about whether whales were fish would be flexed by one of the defense's witnesses, who we'll get back to in a minute, and the lead attorney for the plaintiff, William Sampson. Sampson was born in a well-off Irish family in Londonderry in 1764. He studied first at Trinity College, then Lincoln's Inn in London, where he was called to the English Bar. He soon returned to Ireland, where he worked as a lawyer in Belfast, defending the United Irishmen, along with his senior counsel, against charges of sedition, treason, and the like against the Crown. During this time, Sampson also wrote satirical articles making fun of the English and arguing for secession for Irish newspapers, all of which contribute to his frequent arrest and eventual exile. On July 4th, 1806, he finally landed in New York City. It took him a couple of years to pass the bar in New York, so in the meantime, he made money by publishing the details of trials that captured the city's attention. He never really stopped doing this, actually, and once he became a practicing attorney in New York, he had a habit of picking up sensational cases that he would write up and sell once they were settled. In fact, a lot of what we know about Maurice V. Judd comes from the very neutral and trustworthy source that is Samson's book on the case. Publicity Hound doesn't even begin. Reading the transcripts he wrote of his own examinations and closings, you get the impression that William Sampson was the prototype for every scenery-chewing lawyer from Matlock to My Cousin Vinny to whatever Al Pacino was called in that one movie. My client, the Honorable Henry T. Fleming, should go right to fucking jail! The son of a bitch is guilty! Yeah, well, no, maybe not like Pacino. When William Sampson got his hands on Preserved Fish, the third, comma, captain, he brought with him a picture of a whale and asked him whether it had any resemblance to a fish. Very little, replied Fish. If a whale be not like that, can you say anything to which it is more like? It is very like itself. Its tail differs from all other fish, the tail is flat, and it swims like a man. This was the weakness Sampson was looking for. What did Fish mean by that? What was so like a man about them? Fish said that their fins were actually more like hands and arms. Do you profess to understand the interior structure of these animals? Barked Samson. Have they shoulder blades? Have they the joints and bones which belong to the upper limbs of man? Fish stammered and stuttered. He didn't know. But they weren't like fish. Their tails were horizontal, not vertical, like fishes were. So what about porpoises, Samson asked, and dolphins? Were they not fish either? No, said Fish. They were all mammals. This opened up the heavens against poor Captain Preserved Fish III. Samson gish-galloped his way with a full broadside of clarifying questions. What was a mammal? Where did the word come from? Could he list all of the mammals? Were monkeys mammals? Were men? Fish couldn't answer. 
When asked how he knew whales were mammals, he could only say that he had read it in an encyclopedia. I'm finished with this guy. Captain Preserved Fish III wasn't up for a fight against William Sampson on the proper scientific order of cetaceans. That was a task for the other major player in this story, Samuel Latham Mitchell. Samuel Latham Mitchell was to New York's scientific establishment what William Sampson was to its legal one. He was widely known as one of the smartest and most knowledgeable people in the city, the state, and even the country. Thomas Jefferson called him the Congressional Dictionary, while others referred to him as a living encyclopedia. If you're thinking that this sounds not just impressive, but also perhaps a touch annoying, you're quite right. Mitchell was a pedant, a loudmouth, an eccentric. He was vain and egotistical, self-assured and superior, even if, or even because, he had good reason to be. He was born to a family of Quakers without any claim on money or class, but his early academic success encouraged a rich uncle to send him to Edinburgh, where he learned medicine, botany, and law. Back in New York, he became the founding editor of the United States' first medical journal and a professor at Columbia, where he delivered famously sprawling lectures on botany, chemistry, zoology, mineralogy, and natural history. He didn't make much in the way of original contributions to science, and when he did forward a new idea, he was usually wrong, like his phlogiston theory of disease. Phlogiston, you'll remember from, was it just last episode? Was a hypothetical substance that people believed was responsible for why things burned. And when things burned, Lavoisier had showed, they depleted oxygen in their environment. Oxygen was also important for keeping things healthy and breathing, Mitchell knew, and so he hypothesized that phlogiston was not only the cause of fire, but also the cause of disease. This possibility had severe ramifications to Mitchell. He believed that phlogiston was created, depleted, or transferred by all kinds of natural phenomena, meteors, volcanoes, earthquakes, even rain and sunshine. So to understand, predict, and properly treat disease would require an understanding of, well, everything, which is what Mitchell hoped to achieve. His disease theory didn't gain much popularity. Even Mitchell himself seems to have put it down after a while. But the impulse to know everything remained. He was instrumental in popularizing and explaining the latest scientific advancements to the American public. He almost single-handedly brought Lavoisier's chemistry to the States, more than Lavoisier's friend Ben Franklin, even. He was chiefly responsible for the formation of the New York Academy of Sciences, which he originally called the Lyceum of Natural History, and served as president of the organization for several years. Outside of science, he also served in the New York Assembly and the House of Representatives and then the U.S. Senate from 1804 to 1809. He also thought that the United States should be renamed Fredonia, which is an even worse idea than his disease hypothesis. But what's important to us and to the people assembled in the mayor's court on December 30th is that Samuel Latham Mitchell was both the top American promoter of Linnaean taxonomy and the nation's foremost ichthyologist, having literally written the book on the fishes of New York. The people packed the courtroom because they were baffled by what they had heard, that according to Mitchell, learned men of science no longer believed that whales were fish. And they packed the court because they wanted to see Mitchell and Sampson, two of New York's most famous intellects and most infamous bloviators, duke it out on the stand. They weren't going to be disappointed. Considering their loudmouth reputations, it's probably fair to assume that Mitchell and Sampson knew one another outside of the courthouse, but they also definitely knew one another within it, because Maurice V. Judd wasn't the first time they'd faced off there. It's worth talking about the other time, because it will help us understand another facet of Maurice V. Judd, race. Maybe that's surprising, but we're talking about 19th century America. Everything was at least partially about race, and that includes the question of whether whales were fish. The simple scientific narrative taught in most 101 classes is that Linnaeus introduced his taxonomical system and the world fell in line. The hoopla around Maurice V. Judd shows that it wasn't at all so simple, and that even half a century after Historia Naturae debuted, most people hadn't heard of it at all. When they did hear that, apparently, whales were mammals, and that whatever mammals were, humans and apes were too, the public and the press were flabbergasted. In trial and in the papers, lots of scoffing dismissals were made, to the tune of, if we accept that man and ape are both mammals, what's to stop these scientists from saying that apes should be able to vote? 
It's not a coincidence that at the same time, the state legislature was debating whether free blacks in New York should be given the vote. The last time they had met in court, Samson and Mitchell had engaged in an even more explicit bit of tete-a-tete racism. And I should warn you now that this next section not only touches on issues of racism, but also on sexual abuse and rape. So if you're not up for that, go ahead and skip forward about five minutes. In 1807, Lucy Williams, who the record describes as a free mulatto woman, had a daughter. The child's father, or I should say purported father, was a black freeman named Alexander Whistlow. For the first year of the child's life, Whistlow paid for her boarding and contributed to Lucy's medical fees. But then he began to doubt whether he was, in fact, the father. The little girl had a very fair complexion, which the records describe as Anglican in features. So Whistlow stopped paying Lucy, and Lucy, lacking means, gave her daughter up to the New York City almshouse. Six years earlier, New York had passed a law that said that the parents of a bastard child had to contribute to its care in an almshouse or orphanage. Since Lucy didn't have any money, the almshouse came after Alexander Whistlow for it. But Whistlow publicly announced at court that he did not believe he was the father. And so after a bit of back and forth, a trial was convened at the mayor's court to answer a question that the public found not entirely dissimilar from whether whales were fish. Could a black father give birth to a light-skinned baby? Lucy Williams testified that she had laid with Whistlow, although she said that she was, to a degree, coerced. That to a degree part was important, because there was a fairly popular belief that a child could not be conceived without the consent or pleasure of the mother, something we talked a little about way back in our first season episode, Let's Talk About Sex, Babies. Lucy was signaling to the court that she had fought Whistlow's advances, but not so much so that he couldn't have impregnated her, unlike her next partner. See, Lucy Williams says that after Whistlow had climaxed, another man came in, and forced him out of the room at gunpoint. Then, the second man raped Lucy. The second man was white, which gave credence to Whistlow's argument that he was not the father. But, since she had not consented, Lucy said that only Whistlow could have been the father. The white man in question was not named in court, but we can make a pretty good guess that it was David Hossack. Hossack was a physician, botanist, and professor who is best remembered today as the family doctor to Alexander Hamilton, who oversaw both his fatal duel against Aaron Burr and the similarly fatal duel between Alexander's son Philip and George Ecker. He was also Alexander Whistlow's boss and a good friend of fellow Columbia professor Samuel Latham Mitchell. Like his other good friend, Thomas Jefferson, Samuel Mitchell opposed slavery. And like his other good friend, Thomas Jefferson, he also owned slaves. But when he took the stand for the prosecution to make the case that Whistlow could be the father of Lucy's daughter, he portrayed a shockingly progressive idea of race. The defense had brought in a number of famous and prominent doctors and scientists of their own to testify that it was impossible for a dark-skinned man like Whistlow to sire a light-skinned baby. At a time when more and more blacks were becoming free in New York, the notion of race being an immutable, intrinsic, and predictable feature was important for maintaining white supremacy. But Mitchell said it was nonsense. Honestly, a lot of the arguments Mitchell made in the commissioners of the Almshouse versus Alexander Whistlow were wrong. He believed that race generally, and complexion specifically, were governed by environmental factors and other accidents of birth. And he made a totally erroneous claim that albinism shows that blackness is mutable and can change into whiteness. But his broader point, that race was more or less a social fiction and that children often had wildly different complexions from their parents, was spot on. In their first time sparring at the bench, Samson basically said that if the jury agreed with Mitchell and found Whistlow to be the father of William's daughter, they were essentially codifying in law that there was no difference between whites and blacks and that they would have to be treated equally. The jury agreed, and so they acquitted Whistlow. If you're thinking that I buried the lead and wondering why I didn't do a whole episode about the commissioners of the Almshouse versus Alexander Whistlow, the answer is that 
I learned about Whistlow's case too late in the process of making this episode, or else I very well may have. So instead, we are here to talk about the second time Samson and Mitchell squared off, on the question of whether whales were fish. Samuel Latham Mitchell arrived late to court on December 30th, 1818. He made his apologies and then wasted no time rushing straight into the thick of the matter, saying, As a man of science, I can say positively that a whale is no more a fish than a man. Even more to his point, he added, Nobody pretends to the contrary nowadays, but lawyers and politicians. He went on to refute Samson's opening statement about the taxonomy of Genesis, pointing the court to chapter 1, verse 21. And God created the great whales and every living thing that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly. See, said Mitchell, God himself knew and wrote that the creation of the whales was a separate act from the fishes. He and his fellow scientists were only backing up the inerrant testimony of the Almighty. He explained that whales don't have gills and so can't breathe water. This was a question among some of the sailors called as witnesses, including Captain Preserved Fish III, who knew that whales breathed air, but couldn't definitively say whether they could also breathe water. Mitchell explained that they gave birth to live young and possessed lungs for breathing air. Then he went deeper into the anatomy of the whale's heart, which has two ventricles, unlike fish, which have just one. Mitchell could even speak on the differences between whale oil and fish oil that the merchants and tanners had fought over. Fish oil was made by extracting a bunch of fish livers, plopping them in a barrel, and that's it. The livers, left to their own devices, let off the oil all by themselves. In contrast, whale livers would decompose and melt away without giving up any oil unless the fat was rendered by fire. When it came time for Samson to cross-examine Mitchell, he began trying to outscience the scientist. He asked why, if whales were not fish, they both had fins. But Mitchell replied that the fins of a whale were not like a fish's, and that their anatomies were more like the arms of a quadruped. But if the whale fins are actually like arms, Samson asked, springing his trap, then why don't they have hands and fingers? They do, replied Mitchell. They are covered in flesh, like a webbing, and that is what makes up the ends of the fins. Like people that wear mittens, Samson said, mockingly. No wonder they are awkward. It wasn't going over well. On the finer points of comparative anatomy, Samson didn't stand a chance. So he moved to a broader, more philosophical set of questions. Just what is this new taxonomy about, after all? As Samson and Mitchell took the jury through a guided tour of the history of this relatively new practice, Samson was sure to stop and point out every place at which the experts differed and disagreed. Even today, he noted that the esteemed Comte de Buffon, that's the fourth time he's come up this year, disagreed with the mammalian classification of cetaceans. To Mitchell, science was made of these sorts of disagreements. One person developed a theory, another tested it, another refined or rejected it, and on and on. That was what science was. But to Samson, and to his audience, it all sounded like noise and dross. Fine, perhaps today Mitchell and his fellows were saying whales were mammals, but wasn't it possible that tomorrow they might just say something else? Maybe science would eventually reverse itself and go back to calling them fish again. William Sampson's real kicker, though, is what I'd like you to take a minute to think on. He asked a series of questions to Mitchell, and again in his closing argument to the jury, that basically amounted to this. There were a lot of different ways to classify things. There was the biblical way of beasts, birds, and fish. There was Aristotle's way of the bloodless and the bloodful. There was Pliny's and Ray's and Ballons and Rondelays and Tyson's and Watton's and on and on and on. And then there was Mitchell's way, Linnaeus's way, Georges Cuvier's way. This was the way Mitchell was asking the court to subscribe to. To put it simply, Samson asked, why should they? What was so different about it? What was so superior about Mitchell's way of thinking that everyone else should abandon not only their own thoughts on the matter, but those of all the other philosophers and scientists of the past? Or, as Samson put it in his closing, I think the onus lies on the advocates of this new philosophy to show to what good it tends. If it be to elevate the brutes, it is well contrived. But if it is for the benefit of the humankind, let them show what its virtue is. If it makes us better, happier, or wiser, diminishes our toils, 
lessens our sorrows, exalts our hopes, it is worthy of our gratitude and praise. But if that was the case, Mitchell would have to show it. When the defense had rested, the judge gave his instructions to the jury. He told them that there were two questions they needed to ask. First, they would need to establish that a whale was a fish. If they could do that, they still needed to further establish that whale oil was not a distinct product from fish oil. Only if they satisfied both of those questions could they find on behalf of James Maurice, official fish oil inspector of New York City. Before I tell you what the jury found, I'd like to pose that first question to you. Are whales fish? It probably sounds easy, living here in the 21st century, but is it? Let's start with the inverse question. Why aren't whales fish? Well, they give birth to live young, right? Sure. But you know what? So do eel pouts, and half-beaks, and the red-banded rockfish, and guppies, and bennies, blue sharks, bull sharks, lemon sharks, sharp-nosed sharks, black-spot sharks, most sharks. So, it's not that. Fish are cold-blooded, though, aside from bluefin tuna, white sharks, and 32 other known species. In the Amazon River Basin, there's a genus of fish called Symphysodon that comprises three known species. They're better known as discus fish, especially by freshwater aquarium owners. You've probably seen them. They're thin, tall, arrowhead-shaped fish. Anyway, discus are social, living in groups of up to several dozen, except for when they're breeding. Then the mother and father go away for a while to care for their young, which they feed via a milky substance they secrete through their skin. Are discuses mammals? I mean, it's not exactly breastfeeding, but pretty close. It's very close, in fact, to the way platypuses produce milk. Oh, and speaking of platypuses, we should probably do a whole episode about platypuses, but in the meantime, at the very same moment that the jury was deliberating on whether whales were fish, there was a fiery debate ongoing about what the hell platypuses were. A debate that went on for years and years. A lot of people thought that they weren't real at all, that sailors were sending back fake specimens, like the Hamburg Hydra. Others thought they were fish, others thought they were birds. Erasmus Darwin, Charles's dad, said that they must be result of some sort of bird-fish-mammal clusterfuck. Eventually, it was decided that they were mammals, just like whales, even though they lay eggs and are venomous. My point is pretty close to Samson's. What makes classifying whales as mammals superior to classifying them as fish? Isn't the decision, at the end of the day, arbitrary? In a larger, postmodern sense, can you even say that there is such a thing as the category mammalia? Do these sorts of groupings exist outside of the imaginations of dominant social forces trying to impose a political order on a chaotic world? Linnaeus and Mitchell believed that it was better to categorize animals based on their internal, anatomical morphologies. But what was so much better about that? When you call a whale a fish, it means you know where to find it. When you call a whale a mammal, what does that do? Mitchell didn't have a good answer for Samson. And neither did Linnaeus, frankly. Because both of them believed, like Aristotle, that animals were always what they were. Mitchell believed race was mutable, but species? Species were not. So in what sense were these mammals of his related? Mitchell and Linnaeus both grappled with the question. They had been raised to believe in Aristotle's great chain of being, but by the end of their careers, the idea was falling hard out of fashion. But if the relationship between whales and dolphins and dogs and cows and apes and humans wasn't teleological, if mammals weren't bound by a common purpose, then what were they bound by? Neither of them knew. No one did. Until On the Origin of Species was published in 1859. Linnaeus thought his system was superior. He thought it was more scientific. But even as more and more biologists adopted it, they all struggled to explain why. But Linnaeus was right in a way that he didn't anticipate. His Systema Naturae had accidentally done the most scientific thing possible. It had made a testable prediction. A prediction that escaped notice until Charles Darwin came along. Natural selection is one of the most powerful, 
profound and robust ideas science has ever birthed. Among the many things it answered was the thing Mitchell could not. What made Linnaean taxonomy different from all the rest? What made mammals related was that they were literally related. They shared common anatomical structures because they inherited those anatomical structures from common ancestors. That is the answer. That is the benefit, the virtue, the wisdom. And that is why you must find that whales are mammals. Unlike the jury back in 1818, who decided they were fish. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. This is the part of the episode where I give out special thanks, and I'd like to offer a really big one to all of you for listening. For the last three and a half years that I've been making this show, I've also been working at least one and sometimes two other full-time jobs, which you can imagine... <laughs> It's been a bit exhausting. But between my wonderful agents and everyone who has listened, recommended, and financially supported the show, I finally made the leap. I'm now making the constant full-time, which I already was, but now I'm not doing anything else full-time in addition. Thank you, all of you. But particularly, thank you to Aaron Kristoff, Conchetta Gibson, Megan McDonald, Paul Savage, Maggie Osterberg, and Orion Gilliam for becoming $5 patrons last month. If you want to join them and help me keep the wheels on this thing, go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. We're a part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Rumble Strip, good conversation that takes its time, hosted by Erica Heilman. The latest show is about a summer camp for people with and without disabilities. Most summer camps are places where people with disabilities are not. They're missing. Zeno Mountain Farm is a camp where everyone is. And a camp that includes everyone is way more fun. Like, exponentially more fun. Erica spent a day talking with people there and capturing the sound of a day at Camp Zeno. Listen at rumblestripvermont.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to Wrigley Field, the original home of everyone's favorite baseball team, the Chicago Whales, who opened the stadium in 1914, a year before they were disbanded. This has been The Constant. The Constant.